Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The search at Mar-a-Lago was only three weeks ago, and at the time it seemed plausible to interpret it as only a mission to retrieve sensitive national security documents. But news reporting on the ground and a series of legal skirmishes culminating in the release to the public of a redacted version of the affidavit that the Department of Justice submitted in support of its request for the warrant have shed new light on what seems to be happening at the Department of Justice. And it amounts to the most serious challenge yet to former President Donald Trump's liberty. The outline of Trump's extended illegal conduct is taking shape. He scooped up untold numbers of documents to which he had no right before leaving the White House. They included hundreds of pages of the most sensitive documents, documents that could reveal sources and methods and get foreign agents working with the United States killed. He nevertheless resisted returning them for many months, even after a subpoena, and eventually a lawyer in his camp signed a letter saying all the sensitive documents had been returned. That wasn't true, and when the FBI and DOJ learned it was a lie, they had no choice but to swoop in to blunt the paramount danger to our national intelligence. But it's plain now that wasn't the end of the story. The DOJ is aggressively pursuing a criminal investigation, even as counterintelligence officials try to analyze the fallout from Trump's illegal retention of some of the nation's most sensitive documents. And many sophisticated observers, jaundiced as they may be from watching Trump escape from multiple perils, are opining that this time is different, that it feels as if the department not only has the goods on Trump, but the determination to build a federal case against him. That prospect is the sharpest of the daggers at Trump's throat, but there are multiple others, including in Fulton County, Georgia, which also had notable advances this week. And while Trump and his corruption of government service dominated the news, the week also featured an important legislative achievement, and another in a recent string of victories for President Biden with the passage of a significant student debt relief bill. On a fast-paced day, capping a fast-paced week, we are very lucky to welcome three of the most knowledgeable and quick-footed commentators in the country. And they are David Jolie. He served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2004 to 2017. He's held virtually every position in Congress from intern to member and is the only political figure ever to have run against both Charlie Crist and Ron DeSantis. He's also worked outside the Congress as an attorney and political consultant and in specialty finance. Today, he can often be seen as a policy and politics analyst on MSNBC. David, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Harry. Thank you. Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post, where she covers politics and foreign and domestic policy, also a commentator on MSNBC. Prior to her work with The Post, she wrote for Commentary Magazine. Before becoming a journalist, she worked as a real-life labor law attorney for two decades, and before that, of course, a graduate of the famous Bolt Hall School of Law class of 1986. Jen, always a pleasure to welcome you. Nice to be back. 
And Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, co-host of AIS Election Watch, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and a prolific author. He also has recently begun a podcast with Dr. Kavita Patel, who's awesome, to those of you who haven't listened to her, called Words Matter. Tell us a little bit about the podcast, Norm. The Deep State Radio Network, as it's called, DSR, got in touch with Kavita and me to take this task on. And basically, it's a joy because it's just the two of us usually focusing on words and what they mean, but with a strong political twist and a heavy dose of public health. And God knows we need public health. God knows we need it. And words. Please invite me. I'm a real word nerd. Oh, you uh, If bet. you ever have guests. Yes. All right. So, hot off the presses in more ways than one, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, who approved the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago 18 days ago, it seems longer, so much has happened, released or approved the release of a heavily redacted version today. What did you learn? What did the public learn that was worth knowing about and we hadn't realized? There were a few things. One was um, how bad the Trump lawyers are because they have really walked into a mess. Not only did they concede in January that the government really did own the documents, but the drafters of the uh, redaction and the people who drafted the affidavit themselves had a little bit of fun with them, to put it mildly. And that is they dropped a footnote that explained to Trump's lawyers, who apparently haven't understood this to date, that it's all well and good to talk about classification. But in fact, the specific provision of the espionage, which they are talking about, doesn't have anything to do with classification. It talks about national security documents and that if you have reason to believe that they could be harmful to the United States or be useful to a foreign power, you shouldn't be carrying them around and you sure shouldn't be putting them in a storage area, which we now learn had no lock whatsoever, not just a bad lock, but no lock. And I thank Norm for pointing that out to me. So I think it wasn't surprising in so far that, of course, we didn't learn about the names of the specific people. It certainly reiterated the long back and forth and back and forth between the Trump people and the Justice Department. But I think what struck me is they've got this guy dead to rights. I mean, the sorts of documents they have, which include signal intelligence and human intelligence, no one outside the White House, frankly, no one out of a secure setting should have. And the fact that he and his pals... None of whom had a security clearance, by the way. Correct. That they had this idea that they were his and he could do with them what he wanted and he could misrepresent what had been returned to the government. Good luck getting out of this one. And I have thought for some time that this was the easiest, most direct avenue for the Justice Department. And this just confirms it. I don't know what defense he's going to have. On Fridays, I also do my chat with my readers. And someone asked, well, if you were representing Trump, what would you do? And I said, I'd plea bargain. I do the Hirschman thing. Get a good criminal lawyer. You're going <laughs> to exactly. need that. Right. Exactly. Well, I'll go. So much of what is in that affidavit that we have now seen, the non-redacted parts, reflect things that we had heard here and there before, 
bringing them together in the official document is particularly powerful. And there are a few things that stuck out for me. One is the utter carelessness with which all of these documents were held. The boxes that were returned to the National Archives had mixed together photographs, family things, probably scraps of menus, along with the most sensitive information that our government has to hold on to. And by the way, that it's not that that's something new. And remember, Mar-a-Lago, which has been a sieve ever since Trump became president, we can all remember when he was sitting at dinner looking at top secret information in an open dining room. And we know that Chinese spies, Russian spies, Korean spies, and others paid the dues a very small price for a government to pay to become members at Mar-a-Lago so that they could be hanging out there. The second thing that we learned is that there was this lie about the lock. There was no lock on the storage room door. And we know from this affidavit that there were a lot of people going in and out of that room with access to these documents. Now, there's one thing we learned today that's not in the affidavit that I think is also chilling. And that is about a woman who appears to be a con artist who went by the name of Anna de Rothschild, saying that she was an heiress to the Rothschild fortune, Russian-speaking, who palled around with Trump and spent a lot of time roaming around Mar-a-Lago as well. So the odds that the people going in and out of this room were just his staffers or just his flunkies working around the hotel, some of whom might very well have been paid by foreign agents to try and gather intelligence or information, is close to zero. And let me just say one thing we did not learn yet, which is what were the nefarious purposes for which Trump put aside documents that included sources and methods. And remember, the sources and methods, the most damaging spies that we've had in our lifetimes in our history. Aldrich Ames comes to mind. Robert Hansen comes to mind. Spied and gave over the names of all of those working with the United States who were then executed. This is not beanbag. This is something really serious. And if this guy, the way he handled things, the lies that he's told, doesn't go down for this, among the many other things, it would be a travesty. I would agree with, with Norman Jen, and this confirms that Donald Trump breached our national security by carelessly taking sensitive classified documents from the White House and keeping them in an unsecured location that could be reached by people who wish to do the United States harm. And he did that either out of arrogance or because he intended to profit politically or monetarily off of them. There's no other bucket of excuses other than those two. I do also think, though, the political lens of this today is important because understand the evolution of the Republican outrage from the very beginning. It was to beat up on the FBI and the attorney general. And then they realized, well, we can't be the party that's beating up on law and order. So now we're going to demand transparency. Well, guess what? Since they started demanding transparency, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and, and the judge have decided, you know what, we will release the warrant, and we will release a redacted version of the affidavit. So with your political lens on, Republicans, you've now gotten everything you've asked for. You're no longer beating it up on the rank-and-file FBI, but you've said you want to see what was the case. Now you see it. So what is your response now? Because it goes back to the fundamental premise which is the former president compromised our national security. So Republicans today, what do you have to say about that? Let me just add a couple of things. 
on the safety point, as Norm says, these are documents that get people killed. And remember, we now know something we didn't know a few weeks ago. Way back in January before he leaves, there's an order from White House counsel. You have to return these documents. Somehow it doesn't happen. Not too many people can countermand a White House counsel. One of them is the president of the United States or just ignore him. What I can just give my own experience. Documents like this, it's breathtaking and abhorrent that they would just be sort of casually out and about. And something that I think the affidavit did bring home, even with all the redactions, you see a kind of global architecture. And what basically happens is the archives knows he's got stuff. They think at first it's, you know, the Obama letter and the love letter from the North Korean president. And it literally takes a year where he's bobbing and weaving till they themselves see it. And then everything changes, and it still takes another four months of forbearance until they notify the FBI and DOJ. But anyone in national security or criminal investigation, an interesting, important part there is this remains on two tracks, would be completely in a lather to find out what, in fact, nobody found out until about May. Now we have a grand jury. Now we have a subpoena, another subpoena. We have a visit, we have a padlock, and then finally, tell us, are there no more classified documents? And they write, yep, nothing more, and it's a lie. Knowing the kind of seriousness and gravity of what we're dealing with at that point, you can really see why it was a five-alarm fire. And the only other point I want to make is it's kind of exquisite. Everything we have learned, the basic architecture of the redacted affidavit is the law stuff, the point we you pointed to on paragraph 47 about what's in there, but then it's the things that Trump has led with his chin about. It's things he already knows, the public hasn't, and between hapless lawyering and public posturing, he's given leave for the DOJ to make explanations that just make him look really, really bad. Now, I'll just tell you as a former prosecutor, it goes dark from DOJ's point of view. They said this is pretty early in the investigation, and they'll be developing it. We do know there's fresh probable cause because you needed to go to the magistrate. So they had a lot of people, and and that comes through also, the witnesses in the affidavit who are telling them things from down there. Again, a small circle he has, none of them has security clearance. What sort of happens next? And I'd be interested in anyone's thoughts both about do Republicans continue to toe the MAGA line of evil jackbooted thugs FBI when it's so clear that it was exigent? And two, where's Trump go? Well, if I thought that Republicans had any sense of shame, any (laughs) sense of judgment, I would say, well, of course, I got the guy with national secrets red-handed after having lied to the government that he still had them. Of course, they're going to bail on him. But, oh, Jennifer, that would be foolish of me because they never bail on him. They're in for a penny, in for a pound. They are in for a penny, in for a pound, but we're kind of at a ton now, aren't we? Yes, we are. And I'm very curious to see whether you'll see a little bit more fracturing, whether you'll see some members of the Republican establishment begin to shuffle and begin to hem and haw. It was interesting that you saw 
Mike Pence be one of the ones, as you alluded to, Harry, that said, you know, we really shouldn't be attacking the FBI? Is he going to also come out and say, you know, we really shouldn't be defending, taking national secrets and putting them in unlocked rooms? That would probably be too much to ask for him. But I don't think it's impossible that you would have some Republicans begin to express concern that they might want to hear more from the Justice Department. That's, by the way, the dodge, is that somehow the Justice Department is not explaining their entire investigation to the Republicans on national television, and therefore something untoward must be up. And that's, of course, ridiculous. But I think it will be very interesting to see who really wants to go out on a limb to keep this up particularly since they've been publicly slammed for preposterously propagating the notion that Trump could magically declassify things and therefore escape any legal responsibility. Now, we know factually that's probably wrong too, but really it's completely irrelevant legally speaking. So are there no Republicans who have any sense of self-preservation? I think what we'll probably get in the most likely scenario is what we've always gotten oh, I haven't read it. I haven't seen it. I have to have my nails done. You know, it's this complete inability to wrestle with facts that don't comport with what the base wants to hear. So I suspect you'll hear a lot more cheerleading, but also some very awkward pauses. And can't we talk about something else that's important? No one cares about this. That was kind of what we heard about the January 6th commission. And by the way, I just want to make the observation, I did not think it was possible that the January 6th hearings, as compelling, as gripping as they were, could be overshadowed (laughs) by something else. But this has overshadowed them because it is so damning, it is so clear, and it's so easy for the ordinary person to understand. He took a bunch of secrets with him, and he shouldn't have, and they don't belong to him, and he lied, and he tried to keep them. And that doesn't take bullet points and videos and PowerPoint presentations. And Mark Meadows being turned in cooperation. It's pretty clean. Correct. You got him. I have an op-ed that just came out that we first saw this as just a search to retrieve documents, but now it's the sharpest dagger at his throat. Let me augment with one point that you guys would both know about. The Gang of Eight are going to be asking to see this information from the national intelligence side and to assess it. Those are, you know, the leaders in the two houses. And you would think they normally have a right to it, and yet it's so politically charged, you might also think it's not trustworthy. How will that play out? I'm scared to death of that happening because I do not trust Mike Turner, who's the ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, I do not trust in any way Marco Rubio, who is the ranking on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and even more do I have distrust for Kevin McCarthy. Their willingness to leak things in this case for their own purposes leaves me uneasy. And add a a couple of other points before David. One, uh, Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff before Mark Meadows, and CBS News is covered with shame for paying him a ton of money to be a commentator, just a little while ago did a tweet saying, now we've learned. It's only documents. It's outrageous that they do a search because it only involved documents. Well, the Rosenbergs only involved documents, and Aldrich Ames only involved documents. I mean, Documents kill. These really are. Yeah, it's reaching for a level that is just, I mean, he had to even cringe. He's not a dumb guy at even saying that. 
At the same time, we should point out that this gives added traction to Georgia and New York. The more that Trump is undermined as somebody who had no concern for the safety and security of the United States. Now we've also learned that True Social, his media site, is stiffing all of its contractors, which fits with, of course, the longtime pattern of Donald Trump. Who would have guessed, David, that Devin Nunez would be involved in a scheme of that sort? <laughs> and I think we're going to see that the willingness to move forward against him as he becomes weakened more will be greater. At the same time, I expect we'll see the Mitch McConnells and others who are now looking at a real problem in November. And that problem could be worsened deeply by, one, demoralization among some Republicans, two, the possibility that as some of them get distance from Trump, the Trumpist faction is going to go after them, leading to a kind of internal civil war, that it's going to be a problem for them. I expect the Mitch McConnells and others are going to do what they can to get a little distance here because what they care about is not Donald Trump's skin. It's winning a majority in the Senate and for many others in the House in November. Yeah, Harry, I, I would add two things. Look, put yourself in the minds of Republicans, which I know is hard to do, but you get free points for bashing Merrick Garland and the Biden administration. And so what you saw from Mick Mulvaney is essentially what you're going to see iterations of among Republicans. Some will continue to defend Donald Trump and say, oh, it was no big deal or it was an accident or he did nothing untoward with him. But even those who say, OK, perhaps he shouldn't have had them, they will immediately pivot to, yes, but the Biden administration and Garland were too heavy handed. That's simply what they're going to do, because, again, for their base, the more they hit on Biden and Garland, the higher their numbers go up. Here's the interesting thing. You said, what does Trump do from here on? And I think there's a very intriguing storyline to the last couple of weeks on this. And that storyline is this. Prior to the Mar-a-Lago search, Donald Trump was starting to see a crowded Republican primary field should Donald Trump enter 2024. I think we had gotten to the point where a Ron DeSantis candidacy was inevitable, even if Donald Trump ran. Now, Donald Trump would still be the front runner, but there was now enough room within the Republican primary to consider other candidates, not that were, that were crossing Donald Trump, but they were hugging him tightly saying, I love Trumpism, and I'm going to run because I think I can represent Trumpism. But hey, if the big guy wins the nomination, I'm going to support him. That's where we were three weeks ago. What the Mar-a-Lago event did is it gave Donald Trump himself this catalyzing moment where if he had wanted to, he could have said to the entire Republican Party, now's the time. You're either with me or you're with the deep state. And I'm going to run in 24, and I want your loyalty card right now. And he didn't do that. And this is the intrigue. Why not? Why not? Now, there's the practical consideration that apparently on good authority, if he were to announce he's running, then the RNC has to stop paying his legal bills. Perhaps it's strictly a financial reason. But I'm actually curious if Donald Trump did not seize this moment politically because he knows there's more coming. And he's actually unprepared to make an announcement and then have to absorb the body blows of what else is coming. That, to me, is incredibly intriguing. Why did Donald Trump not seize this moment politically? I, I don't know that we know the answer to that yet. It seems awfully apparent, though, David. That's a phenomenal point. And let's use it as a pivot point, in fact, 
to what you mentioned in passing, Norm. More to come on the affidavit in subsequent weeks. But he's got incoming from many directions. And you specifically brought up Fulton County and the New York District Attorney, as well as the AG. Let me pause for a second on the New York District Attorney. So this is where Alan Weisselberg kept the secrets. He's the lonely, loyal accountant, served forever, who wouldn't give him up. But now he himself has pleaded guilty to 15 felony counts, and he's under irresistible pressure. He really doesn't have a choice to testify in the criminal trial against the Trump Organization. Now, that doesn't augur an orange pantsuit for Donald Trump, but it's a pretty ominous development for Donald Trump, isn't it? We kind of set it aside, but I think in cataloging his many legal woes, this is up there more than we had anticipated. I absolutely agree with you. And I think Weisselberg couldn't have done all of this by himself. He had a lot of underlings who followed his orders, which were orders that came from Trump. And some of them are not going to be willing to fall on a grenade for Trump, certainly not for Weisselberg, and he may pinpoint who they are. You're going to have a lot of people who maybe were junior accountants in this operation who are not going to want to go to jail or pay huge legal bills. So I can see two things emerging from that. One is the AG could end up basically abolishing the Trump organization. If there's one thing that frightens Trump almost as much as going to jail, it would be losing Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster. Maybe forced to go to the uh, bedbug-ridden Doral uh, or... Uh, David, you that's not true, is it? You're from Florida. <laughs> Surely he can't go anywhere in Manhattan. We know that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think despite the fact that Eric Adams has dragged his feet. If we get into this in a way that really shows criminal behavior, I don't see how New York can avoid moving forward on that front for Trump as well. So he's got all of that. I will say, following what David said, if you look at the increasingly hysterical comments Trump is making on Truth Social, it suggests to me that the answer to David's question is he knows that from this investigation, There's a lot more, and it's a lot worse even than what we've seen. He did a a statement, see, there was nothing nuclear. Well, of course there was nothing nuclear. (laughs) That would have been redacted. (laughs) The mere flesh wound. (laughs) That's right. Um, Maybe it involves even more sensitive secrets, but I think you have to consider the possibility that he was selling this stuff for money or doing it because he was being blackmailed by the Russians or by somebody else. Oh, my God. Or maybe it involves the family and MBS in Saudi Arabia. You know, selling them nuclear secrets uh, would have been a very lucrative kind of thing as well. We don't know what's there. But boy, when you look at what he's saying, it certainly suggests that he knows there's a big bombshell or more than one to come. I want to know what those writings were on the uh, documents. Explain, Jen. I don't know if everyone will understand. So the affidavit alludes to his handwritten comments on many of these documents. So what do they do? They have a price list, you know, 500,000, you know, MBS, used for blackmail. Goodness knows what this man had actually written on these documents. But that will be worth the price of admission. I also think that 
we should not lose track of Georgia. Yeah. This week, there was a very lame attempt by Mark Meadows to avoid responding to the district attorney there, Fonnie Willis, who wants him to come testify about what happened in Georgia. And she also, by the way, is corralling Lindsey Graham, who made his own calls to try to help Donald Trump out. And Meadows made these preposterous arguments trying to invent an executive privilege for the governor of Georgia, which simply does not exist. And the court was very dismissive of the sorts of arguments that he was making. So he's going to have to face the music. Is he going to invoke the Fifth Amendment? He probably should, frankly. It seems his only choice, yeah? I think so. And then it also raises Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham tried playing the speech or debate clause, which does not, by the way, cover a lawmaker who wants to call up a state official and suggest that he throw out votes that were legally cast. That is not what the speech or debate clause was. I can second that even if I wasn't first in my class in law school. I was close. So <laughs> yeah, there there's just no doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, most people think of the speech or debate clause in relation to William Jefferson, that hapless congressman from Louisiana who was caught with $90,000 in his freezer wrapped up in aluminum foil. But what it is supposed to do is that if you're doing your business, that is holding a hearing, you're making a speech on the floor, you're not supposed to be held to account for that in some kind of other form. It does not cover Lindsey Graham on a lark doing Trump's bidding by trying to encourage the officials of Georgia to throw out votes. And it doesn't protect him. There's no privilege, um, executive privilege or otherwise, between his conversations with Donald Trump. I do not think that Lindsey Graham on his own thought it was a good idea to call up the state officials. I can make a friendly bet here that he was asked to by his golf buddy, Donald Trump. And that's not a privileged conversation. What privilege protects that? And one quick addition there, a lot of the conversations January 6th, we know they are two parties who will protect each other probably. Think about Roger Stone or Mark Meadows or Giuliani. But the state officials here have testified. There's nowhere for Graham to go and concoct a version here. And uh, another thing I'll just say about Graham, everybody I think is well advised to take the fifth but maybe not him. I wonder what you think about this, David. I think politically, I know he just won and he's he's not in cycle, but man, a sitting Senate member taking the fifth on this, I think is really kryptonite, no? Well, it only matters if Republican voters think it matters, yeah. right? I mean, this is Fair a enough. deep red state constituency that Lindsey Graham answers to. And so Many of these Republican leaders are being affirmed by their voters. Here's what I would suspect Lindsey Graham to do. And I practiced law for all of about two years, so I defer to all the legal wisdom of the others on this call. But you actually saw it in Chairman Neal's push to get Trump's taxes. There is the speech and debate clause, but there also is the legitimate legislative purpose. And I think that the dying gasp that Lindsey Graham will try before the court is that he was pursuing a legitimate legislative purpose to determine what is the Senate's ultimate responsibility in the votes that it certifies. Now, 
that all comes down to presenting that argument before a judge and the judge will make the call one way or another. But if you go to Chairman Neal's request for Donald Trump's taxes, it's an imperfect analogy. But, you know, he was rejected the first time because they said there's no legitimate legislative purpose. So they crafted one to say the Congress needs to study how the IRS handles presidential tax returns. And the court said, okay, good enough. I think what you're going to see Lindsey Graham do is say, look, I was just preparing to, to play my role as a senator, knowing that I was ultimately going to have to vote yes or no on certification. I don't think a judge will, will buy that, but I think that's what we can expect him to argue. If I were Fannie Willis, who is one tough prosecutor, I would be sorely tempted to go after Lindsey Graham because it seems to me on the face of it, it's a violation of Georgia law. Why I might hesitate is that you only need one juror, one Trumpist juror to cling to the argument that David posed, which is laughable in many ways on its face. But I think you'd be less likely to get a conviction of him than you might be of some others. Now, Giuliani, remember, is a target here as well. I suspect that Meadows will end up being a target. We also know that there were lawyers in the room with Trump when he made that perfect phone call, and there ought to be some indictments coming there. And here I will return to one of my favorite hobby horses, which is bar associations (laughs) that have let these lawyers basically get away with legal murder. And it's just an outrage for the profession. Lawyers ought to be ashamed of what their organizations, their bar associations, have failed to do to protect the integrity of the law. Yeah, I mean, people really do, I think, have the general impression, oh, it's okay to lie. The only thing it's not right to do is to bilk a client of of money. (laughs) Right. That they will come up against and you're out of there. (laughs) Right. You know, overthrowing the government, fine. Uh, Maintaining the custodial account in an imperfect way, you're out of there. Right. And it's ironic because when a court finds, of course, you've lied to them, you are toast. But I want to say one thing about the dynamic in Georgia and why this is pretty interesting. Yes, I think she's got some solid evidence against Trump, particularly as you line it up against state law. But there are a lot of practical complications, I think, with bringing a case against Trump. He could immediately bring it into federal court where the jury pool already bad in the state is even worse. There's just all kinds of reasons to think if you step back It will take a few years of legal wrangling till there's a chance of a jury being picked. However, none of that applies to an indictment of Rudy Giuliani. None of it applies to an indictment of Lindsey Graham. And what does apply to them is not simply the prospect of getting a lot of evidence, but the prospect of cooperation against Trump. What if Giuliani is indicted and 78-year-old megalomaniac that he is says, you know, where do you want me to tell the secrets? I'll just, you know, just start the tape recorder. That is a huge fact on the ground, whether or not she can successfully bring charges against Trump. Normally, when you get, I'll speak as a prosecutor, when that target letter is sent out, the indictment follows in short order. Georgia practice seems different. And of course, it's a special grand jury, which can only recommend and maybe she waits. But I think there's a very real chance that she asks for an immediate recommendation from this special grand jury. It's, of course, to indict. She decides to 
And that's a potential game changer, of course, for Rudy Giuliani, but also for Donald Trump. Harry, I'm curious, as a prosecutor, would you consider Rudy Giuliani to be a useful witness? He's so (laughs) crazy and he's such a liar. Him turning state's evidence for the government to use, would you put him on the stand? I mean, that's really problematic. It's a great question. And you, witnesses that you turn are for two reasons. Your own information that you try to corroborate, including putting on a witness and then saying, yes, you know, he's a total, <laughs> totally untrustworthy <laughs> and has bad teeth, but look at what, what all the corroboration we have. Or just to get the information and then keep him off. Because remember, the number one evidentiary hole we have in the whole enchilada here are Trump's own statements. And by the way, Trump's statements are going to be admissible. You may recall from Eleanor Swift's evidence class, their admissions. And for those reasons, they're valuable. It would be a very, very bruising cross-examination. But to have the facts there to know how to proceed would be pretty important. And Rudy may have uh, other information. You know, they seized his phone and, and iPad and the like. But that doesn't mean everything that he had in his possession has been given over to different levels of prosecutors. There may be more there. All right. This is all breaking events. Let's slow the music to nostalgic levels and just take a little trip back to 2019. The release this week of the memo that Barr signed and received from two political deputies nine pages in which he came out and gave this hypothetical account because we knew there wasn't a decision to make. They'd already decided not to indict Trump, but to opine that you could not charge him under principles of federal prosecution based on the Mueller report. Let me start here. It's so clearly written for public consumption at some point, and yet, once again, Merrick Garland plays it straight, says, I won't give it up. Then a court holds it. He, oh, all right, I have to. Another very, very bad day for Donald Trump. What did you take from the memo, you three smart commentators? And what did it evoke of the uh, Mueller report and the past? I think there are two points. One is the people who assisted in that should be ashamed. It's one thing for Bill Barr to put his name in it. It's another for lawyers to make such cockamamie arguments that really are not tenable in any meaningful way. So going back to Norm's point, When you get a bar that's actually willing to go after people for making ridiculous, frivolous arguments and misreading the facts, you can start with these people. And second, it just goes to how fundamentally dishonest Barr was in his PR campaign before it was released, in pre-spinning the report, both in testimony in front of Congress and also his own written comments that basically this was written backwards. They knew that they had to avoid making any kind of recommendation that Trump be prosecuted, and they gave the task to underlings to make up an argument. But it really flies in the face of both the facts and the law, misstating the facts, misstating the law. And, you know, I kind of wonder if there was a little bit of institutional pride that Merrick Garland had that, oh my God, this thing should never have come out of anybody's Justice Department. It would be bad for people to think that the Justice Department ever operates in this fashion. But listen, we know from the get-go, we knew it then, we know it now, that in fact, 
Mueller found substantial evidence in a whole series of categories that you could have prosecuted under, maybe not when he was president, but that there was evidence. This was not an exoneration. He was not cleared of anything. And the allegations that this all was rooted in Hillary Clinton and the uh, infamous file is just nonsense. So I think my overall attitude was one of sort of disgust and also, I think, a reaffirmation about how many people were corrupted by Donald Trump, the degree to which Barr, who now seeks to rehabilitate himself because he didn't support overthrowing the election, as if this is a great achievement, we are reminded how fundamentally dishonest he and that entire Justice Department really was. I second that. And again, it's a travesty that Bill Barr still has a license to practice law. He is a scoundrel. I would go so far as to say he is an evil man. And the other two lawyers, I think, tried to make it clear that they were ordered to do this. As you requested were the first three words of the memo. Yeah. Right? yeah. I think it was not released because they didn't need to release it. And they didn't need to release it because after Barr gave his lying statement about what was in the Mueller report, he did not get the pushback from Mueller and his team that he feared. This was to protect himself in that case. And it, I'm still very disappointed in Mueller and his team. They should have, I mean, they set out a roadmap for offenses here, but Mueller should have said directly in that report, I'm going along with the OLC recommendation or UKZ that we do not prosecute a sitting president. The remedy is impeachment. He should have used that word at that point, and he should have fought back much harder against the distortions that Barr used. And if this doesn't trigger some action against these lawyers, then, you know, it's another bad reflection on the legal profession. I'll just note a side issue that, you know, rather than actually engaging on it, this was Bill Barr's lowest moment. I think he's someone who I greatly respect expected before and I found more sort of heartbreaking and have trouble with the mustachioed evil picture, but I'll just mark that to the side. But here's a basic point about it that was so fundamentally flawed. So Mueller, in his hyper-gentlemanly way, does decide we can't indict a sitting president, and therefore... It wouldn't be fair to opine, though he came within half an inch of doing so, that he committed a crime because we don't give him the occasion a normal defendant would have to exonerate himself or to confront us in a court of law. Well, the very first thing about that memo is a determination by the department, by Steve Engel, that, you know what, you should be bottom-lining, DOJ. That's your job. Now, we can talk about that. But once you decide that, it's just screamingly obvious that what you do is order the nonpartisan, apolitical special counsel, okay, bottom line here, and to have made that determination, but then, and I think we have on good authority, literally without talking to his erstwhile good friend, to shuttle it over to two trusted deputies, not really prosecutors, to give their opinion, that to me did signify that the fix was in. Harry, if I could add one thing to this, because if we revisit the timing of this, this is on the eve of the Mueller report entering the court of public opinion. Right. 
the Mueller report being received by the Congress. And frankly, it was entering August recess. Speaker Pelosi was overseas for, I believe, two weeks. Bill Barr knew that he had a vacuum to fill, and he decided to fill it. And the political action he took here cannot be overlooked. That's exactly what this was. He was setting a public narrative when he should have stayed out of it and let the report speak for itself. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you could say maybe it served its purpose, even though now in history, he gets completely disparaged. But Harry, this is the most important point then. By the time that Congress then brought it up, the issues had been defined by the Barr memo. It was done. Making Barr the lawyer for the president and not for the United States. That's right. Which is the last thing you want an attorney general to do. All right, it is time for our sidebar feature in which we discuss and hopefully give you the scoop on an important concept in the law. Today's is one that has vexed law school students as long, I guess, as there have been automobiles. It's car searches. And when can police officers search in the car, people in the car, glove compartments, etc., etc., a really important and labyrinthine area of the law. And to educate us on it, we're really pleased to welcome Adam Conover, an accomplished comedian, writer, voice actor, and TV host. He began his career as a sketch comedy writer and performer for College Humor, and then created his own series that would later move to True TV called Adam Ruins Everything. He's also known for his many voice acting roles on BoJack Horseman. I give you Adam Conover on Car Searches. The Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. When we're in our houses, we enjoy maximum protection, while on the street and in public view, we have the least. There's a very important and complicated middle ground, though, namely our cars. In general, police officers aren't required to obtain a warrant to search a car. When the law permits the police to stop a car, that's a whole other Fourth Amendment topic, the officers can go ahead and search the car so long as they have probable cause to believe that it contains contraband or evidence of a crime. And they can seize such items if they're within plain view inside the passenger compartment. Now, countless encounters during traffic stops, including so many that go awry and result in the death of a driver or passenger, originate under this exception. When the Supreme Court established the exception, it reasoned that it would be impracticable for officers to obtain a search warrant because cars can be driven away. The court subsequently explained away privacy interests because cars transport people and goods in plain view. This holds even for a car parked on public property, like the street, which police can search without a warrant. But what about trunks, glove compartments, and closed containers inside a car, which do store goods out of public view? Well, first, if police have validly stopped a car and they have, quote, articulable facts warranting a reasonable belief that weapons might be present, they can conduct a search of those portions, but only those portions of the passenger compartment in which a weapon could be placed or hidden. They can also briefly pat down the drivers and passengers. Next, if police have probable cause to believe that a suitcase or closed container in a car has contraband or evidence of a crime, they can search it without a warrant. That's true even if the probable cause applies just to the car itself, but the object of the search could fit within the trunk, suitcase, or container. 
And third, if police have arrested the passengers and impounded the car, they may perform a warrantless inventory search to catalog the car's contents and ensure it doesn't contain dangerous materials. So the overall rule is that if police have probable cause to believe there is contraband or evidence of a crime somewhere in the car, they can search without a warrant anywhere it could be found. What they can't do is stop and search a car or any container in it without probable cause to believe that the object of their search can be found where they are looking. For Talking Feds, I'm Adam Conover. Thanks very much for schooling us on car searches, Adam Conover. Earlier this year, Adam's limited series, The G Word with Adam Conover, was released on Netflix. It was produced by new up-and-coming TV producers, Barack and Michelle Obama. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's spend a few minutes anyway talking about actual government in action <laughs> with actual <laughs> policies and, and potential controversies instead of government in corruption and dereliction. So pretty big news this week, the federal student loan forgiveness. Biden announced his plan. We're told he really ruminated about it, ruminated about the figure. We've heard some interesting cross-currents on both sides of the aisle. Let me cut to the chase of a very uh, provocative tweet from one David Jolie. The <laughs> likelihood of this dramatically backfiring on Biden is unfortunately very, very high. Not just high, but very, very high. David, what are you thinking? So very importantly, I don't actually have a personal opinion on this. I tried to lose all personal opinions when I left Congress. <laughs> this is just a political study. And Here's how I would frame it. The Biden administration is coming off a summer of very low risk, high reward legislative wins. 
from guns to a minimum corporate tax to Medicare negotiating price controls for prescriptions to capping out-of-pocket prescription costs and low risk, high reward. Recognize Republicans are not really beating up the Biden administration over any of those legislative victories because they can't. They can't say corporations should be taxed less. We need higher drug prices. We need more gun violence, right? This is a big summer for Joe Biden. And what I would suggest he did in the move this week on student debt is he grabbed a low reward, high risk proposition. And what he actually did is he handed Republicans a lightning rod. You can defend what he did, certainly on moral grounds. I know a lot of people say this is life-changing, and it certainly is for beneficiaries of that. But what he did do was light a divide in the country where there hadn't been one. And he handed Republicans a very powerful issue. So, look, my tweet is that there is a high likelihood this backfires. That's not to say there is. I certainly could be proven wrong. But what I would suggest is the Biden administration just took on an incredibly divisive issue this week that is going to evoke strong passions on both sides of the issue going into November. I would just say that I don't agree with the policy. I think we send a wrong message by, for example, not requiring that they pay back something. Many people had a debt that was less than 10000 or if they had a 20000 that we should have encouraged people to at least pay something. But as a political matter, the White House was loaded for bear and ready for this. And what we saw in the last 24 hours was them coming back with the information on loans giant loans that had been forgiven, that had been given to Republican congressmen as part of the PPP. And of course, as part of PPP, some very large corporations were forgiven their loans. And the argument was essentially, well, if you're going to do it for them, why not do it for these people? My answer is you shouldn't do it for anybody. People should pay their debts, but that's me. And I think what he did there was kind of dilute or deter Republicans' willingness to be quite so out there on this. I don't think it'll stop them, but to be quite out there. I would also say as a political matter, you know, from my conversations with the White House, the Democratic Party is a big old coalition and they have to keep this people happy and those people happy. They had to keep moderates um, happy. They had to win over Joe Manchin to get a bill through. And this is a little bit of keeping the group together kind of stuff. There were many in the party who wanted to wipe out 50,000 worth of debt. The NAACP and unions were threatening to go out and campaign against Biden if they didn't do some of this. So some of the stuff you do in government is simply a political compromise. And I don't think that had he not had that pressure internally, he would have done that, frankly, because I think his initial inclination, which was the right one, was working class people don't like this. More people in America do not go to college than do by a lot. And they're mostly Trump voters, especially there was also a racial dynamic here. Yeah, exactly. So I would say one thing, it's sometimes better to be lucky than good, because what's the news for the next few days? <laughs> so once more, Trump screws the Republicans by taking the attention from something that might help them and directing it back to himself. Let me add a few points. The one thing I wish Biden had done in addition to this is to call out the scam of higher education, Yes, which is the sky-high tuition rates Lots of people pay a lot less than the manufacturer's suggested retail price. 
Part of the reason that tuition is so high is that we have so many more administrators, deans and assistant deans and others, and we need to overhaul the system entirely. I never had a student loan, but that's because I'm old and I went to a state school. When I went to the University of Minnesota, believe it or not, the tuition when I started was $85 a quarter. In other words, $255 a year. It went up in my senior year to 125 a quarter. We were outraged. Think about that. $375, no matter what you do with inflation, that is a pittance compared to what there is now. I had a minimum wage job, a dollar and a quarter an hour, and I paid my tuition and my books and my costs. So he should have done that. But as Jen said, he had to do something on this front. And we have to keep in mind that for a large number of people, the debt that they have been saddled with made much greater, frankly, because in the Trump administration, the Secretary of Education let big banks raise interest rates for these student loans, and that's not a new thing, beyond what they used to be. As I recall, my wife had a a small loan from Yale Law School, but it was like at 2% or 3% interest. You know, you've got some of these kids who've had to pay 12 or 15%. One of the things that it's done is people coming out of college or graduate school can't go into a public interest job, can't go work for a nonprofit, because they can't afford to pay back the loans. So this was something that needed an overhaul. It still needs an overhaul. But among all the issues we have out there heading towards November, David, I'm just skeptical that this is going to keep an outrage level up enough that it will make a difference in terms of the votes cast. And you're right, it created a big divide. I agree with you on that. I agree with you. I think it will be in most Republican campaign commercials this fall. Yeah because they're speaking to Republican voters, right? Yeah. And they're going to drive this wedge. And Norm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the comprehensive reform because the opportunity missed here for the Biden administration was to actually wrap this in a comprehensive reform package. They did some things. They did a, we're going to cap it at 5% of your income, your repayment levels and so forth. But here's a perfect example. Student loan does not have available to it the same ability to reorganize and restructure in bankruptcy court, right? Because of the moral hazard argument, the law does not allow that. Well, guess what? Why don't we rewrite the law and trust bankruptcy judges to say, if you can no longer make payments based on financial conditions, you're eligible for reorganization. The other thing is the law of unintended consequences. In the 90s, when the Clinton administration came in and said, we are going to bring the government into the lending business and underwriting loans and take the universities out of it so that more people can go to to college, good public policy. What it did is it gave the university system a free ride. They get paid up front, but unless the default rate of their graduates exceeds 16 or 18%, They don't care if their graduates actually earn enough money to pay back the loans. They've already been paid. So what if we actually tied remuneration to the universities to the performance of their graduates' loans? Now you're talking about real dramatic reform in American higher education? That's not this. This is actually going to be this economic wedge issue going into November that Republicans are happy to grab onto. Good points. And that's not even considering the separate scandal of for-profit colleges, which are the source of half the defaults here. 
You know, the explanation that David Jolly just gave is a perfect example of what we are missing by having a non-functional Republican crazy pants party, <laughs> that there is no one there to make these very sane, actually conservative arguments, the arguments they make have nothing to do with conservatism, but which actually look at things like moral hazard, which actually look at reform, which actually look at unintended consequences. These were the things that David and I used to propound when we were both, you know, well within the mainstream of the Republican Party. There's no David Jollies left. And it's not like there are people out there who want to, you know, rearrange the furniture. They're burning down the house. So this is what we lose when one party goes completely off the deep end. There's no real discipline for the party that's left. And we lose a smart component of public policy. Yeah, it's a stunningly good point. I mean, the Republican Party is just no longer the party of ideas, which it really was for a couple decades. That's a big can of worms to open, but I'm closing it now because we are <laughs> out of time. We just have a couple minutes for our Talking Five feature, and it's sort of in honor of David Jolie. We're going straight to Florida and asking the question to answer in five words or fewer, will... Ron DeSantis make his break from Donald Trump and when? Will DeSantis make a break from Trump and when? Five words or fewer, esteemed guests. Yes, right after the indictment. (laughs) Uh, I would say he already has. Ron DeSantis separated himself from Trump after getting inaugurated governor. He used Trump for everything he needed to get elected. He hasn't needed him since. He left him a long time ago. Wow. And two extra words, Norm, maybe you can borrow them from David. Yeah, go ahead. No, I I will say it in a slightly different way. Yeah. Autocratic Orban wannabe already has. (laughs) That's really good. Guys, there's a lot of information in there. Wow. It's a good thing he has that word podcast. He gets his full value. Jeez, uh, so out of my depth here. Oy vey, bad to worse? <laughs> we are out of time. Thank you very much to Norm, Jen, and David. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just this week, we posted a discussion with New York Times reporter David Fahrenholt about the eye-popping levels of pandemic relief fraud and how law enforcement is responding. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com contact, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers... The Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. 
Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to Adam Conover for explaining car searches in today's sidebar. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.